Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, guys, I'm going to start things for today. Uh, my ambitious goal is to do a whirlwind tour of Paul's first missionary journey. It's probably uh, a unwise decision. There's two chapters that the missionary journey is detailed in, so there's a lot of material here. I'm not going to try to touch on every single little thing, but rather just the big bird's eye view of what's happening. We're at Acts 13, and the story begins here in Antioch. Remember that Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. They are spending time teaching there. They've spent a year there. Barnabas was the first to go there to see what was going on because back in Jerusalem, they heard that more and more people and even Gentiles are hearing the gospel and believing. Barnabas goes up there and Barnabas sees everything that's going on and he simply encourages them and probably himself is encouraged by it. He runs over to Tarsus. He picks up Saul, brings him back to Antioch, and they're there teaching for a year. Um, and uh, 13, like I said, we're back here in Antioch. And in Antioch, 13 verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, We've heard that term before, that there have been prophets. We heard about Agabus and how he prophesied that there would be this famine. And in fact, it's that prophecy of famine where the people of Antioch bring a a donation, food, down to Jerusalem. And Saul and Barnabas are the ones that bring that back. So we just heard about that in 1225. Um, but when they return from Jerusalem back to Antioch, it's not only Saul and Barnabas, but also John Mark, who we heard about tangentially, because when Peter was freed from prison, he went to Mary's house, and this Mary was the mother of John, that is, John Mark. So uh, a lot of things kind of coming together in Luke's story. Well, we hear about prophets, again, occasionally, in the story, but we'd always want to know, you know, where did these prophets come from? Who who are they? What is this different than Old Testament prophets and that kind of thing? But Luke just kind of throws this in, matter of fact. A prophet, at the most basic, is somebody who proclaims God's word. That can be a, a declaration of law and gospel. So you know, we think more like a, a preacher. But as we saw with Agabus, uh, through the Lord, a prophet may also talk about something that is to come. These prophets, Luke talks about them as though they are true prophets. So these are generally not to be thought of as people that say, hey, I'm, I'm a prophet. I've decided this. But people to whom God gave this word, people that God was using, and the church recognized that. 
their, their prophecies were true. They were true to scripture. They were true to life if they were telling about events in the future. But we hear about them. And then paired with them are also teachers. And that makes sense that you would want teachers uh, teaching the word of God, teaching the people. And these are kinds of the people that it seems are in charge, important. Again, as we think about church structure and, and whatnot, they're not talking about like having bishops or anything like that. It's just people getting that word out and getting people in the word and teaching from that word. Then Luke gives us a list of people. And the idea here is probably that these are some of those people that Luke has in mind who are prophets or teachers or prophets and teachers. Luke doesn't really assign titles with specific names, but he says, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so we know a couple of those names, obviously the first and the last. We know who Barnabas and Saul are. The other, we don't really know who they are. Some people have speculated that this um, Simeon, who is called Niger, meaning probably he's from that northern Africa region, uh he could be Simon of Cyrene. Some people have speculated that, but Simon of Cyrene is in Luke's gospel and he's called Simon, not Simeon. And here there's no connection to him specifically with Cyrene. The next person, Lucius, is connected to Cyrene. So um, some have tried to link this Simeon, but Probably we just don't know who this person is. In Acts, we meet a few people. Their names are mentioned. It's probably pretty clear that their names are thrown around because other people would have known them or heard of them. But we, for our parts, we just don't know who these people were. Lucius of Cyrene, this is another one that that some people speculated on, and they connected this Lucius with Lucas meaning Luke, uh, our guy here who's going to be a companion of Paul, that he was a teacher in Antioch. Again, that seems a little bit of a stretch. Um, it's probably safer to say we just don't know who these people are. But again, here's a connection backwards to we heard that there were people from Cyprus and Cyrene who were the ones that in Antioch were spreading the gospel even to Gentiles. So this is showing that that connection is still there between other people coming in and bringing the gospel. This isn't just uh, people of Antioch. And Antioch itself was a very large city. I think we talked about that, a very cosmopolitan city. So it's not too surprising that the people are coming and going from all different places in Antioch. Consider it like the, the New York City. It's a big place. A lot of different people are coming to for various different reasons. This uh, Manaean is interesting, a member of Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, this would be Herod Philip, the one who beheaded John the baptizer, the one who was a part of the trial of Jesus, not Herod Agrippa that we just heard about. And so this is interesting that even though he grew up in Herod's household, part of that family, whose side is he on now? 
that the gospel reaches all of these different places. We're going to hear, well, yeah, we'll hear a little bit later how Paul has the chance to, when he's in Rome, bring the gospel even to people who are part of Caesar's household. It just, it's amazing how God provides room and opportunity for that word to come to people that you wouldn't expect to be part of it. And here this Manan is, is a, an important fellow. He's linked with Saul and Barnabas, the prophets and the teachers of Syria. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So begins the first missionary journey, and there is a clear call from the Holy Spirit. We might have questions here. Um, the details just aren't... Yeah. It says, while they were worshiping, who's the they? Well, presumably it's the church in Antioch. It's a lot of different people. It's not just, for instance, Paul and Barnabas. So while they are worshiping, this church is worshiping, they are fasting. So you fast in order to devote yourself to to God. It can be through times of worship, times of prayer, but their fasting is to help their their worship happen. And the Holy Spirit says this. Is this an audible, like where they all gather together and they they hear the Holy Spirit? Was this uh, inner voice that they're all worshiping and they all like, you know, hey, I have this idea. And somebody's like, yeah, I had that idea too. We don't know. What Luke is clear on is whatever the prompting was, the saying of the Holy Spirit, it was the Holy Spirit that is behind this. It is the leading of the Holy Spirit that is going to send Saul and Paul and Barnabas on this missionary journey. It is at the clear direction of God. This wasn't just a a man-made idea. It wasn't from them. However... God used that church of Antioch. They were the ones that laid hands on Saul and Barnabas and prayed and sent them on their way. This isn't really that difficult because it's really close to language that we use in our day about calling teachers or pastors, church workers to a congregation. I am here because I was called by God to be here, to be your pastor, but it's not as though God just came out of nowhere and put this message in my heart, go to Bourbon A, Kankakee. No, it's you guys as a congregation had a list of names together and You looked over those, you prayed about that, and you made a decision, and you were the ones that called me. You were the ones that sent that call, but we talk about God is the one that does that. It's a divine call. It's not just a a decision made like in a business meeting. This is a holy thing. So what we hear happening in Antioch, I think really isn't that different than that. It's not, is the Holy Spirit doing this, or are the people at Antioch doing it? It's both of them. It's both of them working together, just as we do in in churches and schools. It's not just, 
we as a group of people decided to do this. This is, this is something that we feel this is God at work among us. And that idea of vocation, that God uses people to call uh, to very different places in this world, and they're all doing his work. So Paul and Barnabas here, they're sent from Antioch, but this is really important to know at the beginning, it's the Holy Spirit that's ultimately behind this. He's going to use the church at Antioch, but the Holy Spirit is going to be driving this mission. The one thing that's kind of puzzling is that in this little saying, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, in that little snippet, we don't know exactly what the work is that the Holy Spirit has called them to. Do they have a game plan? Do they have any idea what it is that they are to do? And some people have said, it's really, as a call, well, A, it's not that different from when pastors receive a call. We, Who knows what our ministry is going to look like at a given place, right? We might have some thoughts and ideas, and you might have some thoughts and ideas, but when you get there and you see what needs to be done and the the Spirit directs you to things that need to be done, it, it can be completely different. This call, I don't think Saul and Barnabas would have said, all right, here's our Here's our map. This is where we're going to these places, into these places. We'll spend so much time here. Here's our goal here in this place. Instead, I think it's a lot like the call to Abram and the call to the Israelites. They don't know where it is exactly that God is leading them, but he'll be there. When you need to know this next step, he'll let you know the next step. But he's not letting you know What's three steps ahead? Just a little bit at a time. But we can kind of maybe using our common sense sort of get a general idea of why the Holy Spirit brought them to the places that he did. So the first place that they go to, Antioch is not a a port city. So if you want to set sail, you can't leave from Antioch. You have to go to a port city. The nearest port to Antioch is the city Seleucia. So they go from Antioch to Seleucia, and from there they're going to sail to that little island of Cyprus. And Cyprus, it's a reasonable place to go, because who's connected to Cyprus? God is. Barnabas, our man Barnabas, he is from Cyprus. It's his home city. He's been in Jerusalem. He's been in Antioch for a while, but he knows the area. He might have connections. And so they go to some of those places. Again, from a human understanding, that would make a lot of sense, that God sends them not to the middle of nowhere, but to a place where they can start with connections they already have. Maybe, you know, they know a few people, they can arrange some meetings, a place to stay, that kind of thing. And the first place they go to is the city of Salamis. And from there, they make their way to the city of Patphys. Salamis is, I don't know the size of the city off the top of my head. It's a less important city than the city of Paphos. Paphos is the capital of Cyprus. It's where the uh, Roman headquarters for the government of Cyprus would be. And so in Cyprus, we're going to hear about Paul's interactions with the government there and the leader of Cyprus. In Roman terms, he's called the proconsul. 
So he's the one from Rome sent there to be in charge, and Paul is going to meet with him. Along the way, they meet a magus, M-A-G-O-S. We've had that term before, Simon, uh, our magician. Well, now they get another one, and this guy's name is Bar-Jesus, um, which is... Yeah, Bar-Jesus. Isn't that a funny name? It literally means son of salvation, that name Jesus. It's part of that. Bar is a word that means son. And in Paul's encounters with this guy, it goes kind of predictably, just like it did with our man Simon. They're immediately jealous of the power that Paul and Barnabas have. They're jealous of that word and authority that they have, that people are now listening to them and not to us. And so, you know, they want to kind of chase them out of town. But uh, Paul has this wonderful interchange with him where he calls him not Bar-Jesus. He doesn't greet him by name. Hey, Bar-Jesus. Hey, son of salvation. Instead, he says, you son of the devil. I have to fill that in before somebody else says something. You son of the devil. So it's, it's kind of a play on his name. But again, it's, it's identifying who he truly is and where he uh, is coming from, who he is speaking on behalf of. Yeah, it's Aramaic. <laughs> good, good, good luck with that. But he then, Paul then uh, calls down this miracle where this magician will be blind for a period of time, and so it happens. And so this this magician, you know, he's kind of, whoa, I don't see anything, and everybody sees this. And again, it's that confirmation of God's power. The miracle is never an end unto itself, but it is confirmation for the people that that the word that Paul is speaking is the word of God. It is a true word, and it is a word that really has authority. Well, while all of this is happening, the proconsul there in Paphos sees all of this, and his heart is is turned a little bit. I I, I gotta listen to these these guys. They they have an important message to to preach about, and so in Paphos and in Cyprus, it ends on a really positive note that that they have this hearing, yes, in these cities, but of the, of the highest order of the Roman government. And this is also important kind of later on. We've seen the conflict with Herod. You know, Herod tried to persecute the church. But Luke paints a picture that not all Romans, not all Gentiles hated Christians. Some of them became Christians. Some of them heard that message and believed that message. And so what leads... Paul and Barnabas to leave from Cyprus. It's hypothesized. This isn't specifically written in Luke's gospel. But when they're going to depart from Cyprus, from Paphos, the next place that they're talked about going is Antioch. So they're going to another city. I know it's confusing. They both have the same name. So this one, when we're talking about both of them together, is called Syrian Antioch. And this city is in the region of Pisidia. So it's called Pisidian Antioch. They go right there. 
Well, Pisidian Antioch is like the administrative capital of the region Galatia. This is a province of the Roman government, just like Cyprus is, just like Syria is. So they go right there. Well, why do they go right there when there were obviously cities that they're going to talk about later that they just, they seem to ignore? One hypothesis is that they were so well received by the proconsul in Paphos that he sent a delegation, he sent some kind of letter, he sent something with them so that they would have a hearing in the city of Antioch. Again, a big, important city. So they, they're going to the big, important places. They're going to places where they have opportunity, where they have connection. So this mission journey is starting off in really good terms. It seems like things are going really well. Yeah, there's, there's some stuff that comes up in Cyprus, but they, they show that, that God has that power and authority. And then in Antioch, there's a lot written in, in Acts on what happens in Antioch. Because here in Antioch, we have a sermon that Paul gives while in a synagogue. This is, again, the normal operating procedure. We've heard about this in the Gospels when Jesus goes to a synagogue, that they'll read from the prophets, they'll read from the Old Testament, and then they have a time where somebody can offer an interpretation or a, a sermon And this can be arranged that they have a teacher in place to do this, but there are also times when it seems like it's it's open for anybody to do it. And here in uh, Pisidian Antioch, they have that opportunity when uh, the ruler of the synagogue says, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul has this wonderful opportunity. For right now, I'm going to kind of jump over the message Suffice to say, if you read it in detail, it might be a little different, but it should remind you an awful lot of Peter's sermons. To this Jewish audience, the message is always really the same, that Jesus is the Messiah, that this is all part of God's plan. He fulfills the prophecies. He's here. He died. He rose again, and we are witnesses of this message, that this is God's salvation. And now what what is left for you to do, but to repent, to believe, to be baptized, and be a part of what God is doing. Yeah. We covered the first missionary uh, journey in Bible breakfast yesterday. Okay. Nice. Kind of uh, advertisement. Bum, ba, bum. Um, and I got the impression from the video by Dr. Paul Meyer that they said they established churches in Perga and Attilia, and then on the way back, you know, they retrace their steps on the way back to visit all those churches. If, if that's, if that's true, Luke skips over, I mean, obviously, in order to get here, Atelia's the port. They, they had to go there. What they did, how much they did, Luke just doesn't tell that on the inbound, on the outbound, he does include these cities. Maybe that's why he's that, because if the churches were established, then they revisited all those churches right. to yeah. check up on them, I guess, on their way back home. Right. He also mentioned that John may have left them because of kind of a power struggle, and he did point out that 
earlier is always Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas mm-hmm. and Paul, Barnabas, and all of a sudden, then it becomes Paul and Barnabas, and mm-hmm. Paul has now taken over the lead role mm-hmm. of the mission. Mm-hmm. So he speculated maybe that John was having some trouble with that. That's why he left him. Yeah, there's there there. It's hard not to read too much into the text because we sort of, you know, from human nature, a lot of that would make a lot of sense. Um, it's good that you said that though, because I didn't, I didn't mention that. When, when they leave Cyprus and get to this whole area is called Asia Minor, uh, John Mark heads back to Jerusalem. And Luke just sort of says it matter of factly here, but a little later in Acts, I think I have the reference there in Acts 15, Luke says that John Mark deserted them. And it appears that Paul doesn't really want to bring Mark along with other journeys. And instead, Paul and Barnabas kind of go their own ways. I mean, there's, there's certainly conflict. Peter and Paul, there's conflict there. You can't miss that if you read the book of uh, the letter to the Galatians. So that stuff is there. It's hard without all of the details there, you know, I, I don't I don't want to read too much, but that's that's a very likely explanation. It could be that John Mark got word that something was happening in Jerusalem and he had to go back. He wanted to be with his mom. You know, he he's depicted as being younger than Paul and Barnabas. But what 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 it was that happened, we don't know. It is significant enough that Luke mentions it and comes back to it and puts a more negative tone on it later, talking about him deserting them. It is clear, though, from Antioch, who are the ones who were sent? Paul and Barnabas. So John Mark comes along as like an assistant, but it it doesn't seem that he was recognized as having the same uh, authority and whatnot. The switch from Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, um, there's, there's a couple of different explanations. One is that Luke becomes a companion of Paul, and so Luke has a lot more time to hear Paul's account of things, and Paul does seem to be doing a lot, we don't know if that means that Barnabas wasn't, or again, it's just, that's the, that's the perspective in the story. There, there are a lot of stories that Luke doesn't tell, and it doesn't mean that those other things weren't important. It just, it didn't fit into the story that, that Luke tells us. But yeah, Paul's prominence is, is highlighted, especially there at Paphos, when Paul's the one that has that specific encounter with Bar-Jesus. In this region, this is more Paul's home area. So maybe the reason, like I said, we don't hear much of what happens at Salamis. Maybe Barnabas was more in charge there, and Barnabas had more to say, but Luke just didn't bring back all of those stories from Barnabas. We we don't know. Um, but this area, Paul growing up in Tarsus, it's not necessarily that he knew all of these places, but that's more his area than Cyprus would have been. Okay, so at Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, he gives this sermon. For our purposes, like I said, I'm just going to kind of zoom over it, but it it fits 
Paul's the speaker, but it's the same message that Peter has given uh, first at Pentecost and then uh, again in other places to Jewish audiences. From Antioch, though, trouble happens, and it happens pretty quickly, because in one Sabbath, he gives this message, and a lot of the people really like it, and they're like, hey, come back, come back the next Sabbath. We, we want to hear more from you about this Jesus, more about what it is that's going on. So we're jumping, we're at verse 44 in chapter 13. So this is the the second Sabbath that they're there. It says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they're filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling them. Okay, so this is something that often goes unnoticed, I think, but is really important. In all of these places, not all of them, but most of the places that we're going to be talking about, Paul goes to the cities, and the place that he goes, first of all, is where? To the, yeah, there's only one temple in Jerusalem, the synagogues, the place of worship. I, we, we know what we're talking about. They go to their places of worship, the Jewish place of worship, and he talks to fellow Jews and again reveals this message. This thing that we believe and are waiting for, the Messiah, it's happened. His name is Jesus. And let me tell you all about this. And that's wonderful. And when they, they do that, there's always some people that hear and receive that message and they're really happy and some people that are unmoved and some people who are like, get this heretic out of here. They are speaking contrary to God's word. We don't accept this. God is not a human being. You know, this this is wrong. It's false. So that mixed reaction is always there. Don't think, you know, they just have this magic touch and everything they do has immediate success. Here we know that's not the case. So the Jews are in all of these places. And so when Paul is traveling about, he's not starting at zero. There's knowledge there. They know the Old Testament. They know the scriptures. They know what it is they're waiting for. So Paul doesn't have to tell a brand new story. He's simply telling the fulfillment of a story that they all know. And the Jews in all of these communities, they they tend to keep to themselves. We've talked about this earlier with Cornelius, that Gentiles are unclean and we don't associate with them. Well, it seems almost immediately from Paul speaking in these synagogues, the word doesn't just stay in the synagogues. Here, it says people from all over the city want to come to hear Paul. And so the jealousy that comes from the Jews could come from a lot of different places. But it's like, hey, we're God's people. And there are Gentiles that, that are coming, and they're coming to hear this message. The Messiah is not for them. The Messiah is for us. Or it could be, hey, we can never fill the synagogue on Sabbath. And here this Paul guy comes along and we don't even have room in the synagogue for all of the people. They could kind of be jealous like that. But whatever it is, Paul is suddenly given a much bigger audience. He didn't necessarily go out and seek that audience. The, the word that Paul preached was to the people and the people spread that word. And it's a really positive thing that all of these people are here. But at the same time, Jews who are jealous are going to stir up trouble. Do you have any idea what 
type of Messiah present-day Jews are looking for? There's no one answer to that. Oh, present day. Yeah, there's still no one answer to that. Um, Because some are expecting a, a very real Messiah. Some have sort of, you know... The, the, the Messiah stuff is more of a symbol, a symbol of hope and renewal that we as Jews have. And, you know, one day God will, will work that out. Um, there's, it's many, many is, is the short answer. Yeah. There, there is no one. This is what all Jews believe. Just like in Jesus's day, there wasn't either. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. We'll we'll hit one sermon that he gives to a non-Jewish audience, and and we'll we'll see that. Uh, it's it's very brief. It's very different because, like I said, you look through uh, chapter thirteen there in that long uh, sermon that he gives. He's quoting the Psalms. He's quoting the prophets and showing how all this fits together. But to Gentiles. So, what, what are you talking about? That, that doesn't mean anything to us. All right, finishing up here at Antioch. So, um, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the, for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So, the Gentiles hear this, and maybe they don't have all of the background, but they're like, wow, we, we, we did not know that this is a message for us too, that God loves us and cares about us. But it ends on the sour note. The Jews, they incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And they, being Paul and Barnabas, shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Antioch ends, not necessarily because Paul and Barnabas are are done. Uh, they might have wanted to stay here and do more. You see the reception that they have received, both the positive and the negative, but they are basically tossed out of the city. So this is now going to be a common reoccurrence. Things seem to start very optimistically here. They were received so well at Paphos, but now at Antioch, things change, and it tends to be they're in a city for as long as they can safely be in a city. So they will go, they will proclaim the message, but these guys back in Antioch, they're just they're going to follow them around. And they're going to keep chasing them out, get out, get out, get out. And this is constantly going to be what bothers Paul and Barnabas. So from there, they go to the city of Iconium. And then they're going to go to Lystra and Derby, And then they're going to swing back around to all of those places and head on out. At Iconium, we uh, hear kind of the same thing. So even though at Antioch, 
Paul's very bold about the fact that Jews, you've rejected this message. We're going to the Gentiles. But when they go to a new city, Tabula Raza, they start with a bank, a blank slate. They're not from now on never talking to the Jews again, never going to their synagogues. Nope. New city. All right. Where do we go? First, we're going to go to the synagogues and they're also then going to feel free to speak to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. They won't have any problem doing that. And as they do so in Iconium, it seems that there are a great number who uh, believe, both Jews and Greeks, Luke tells us. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So despite the fact that there is some opposition, Paul and Barnabas aren't for that reason saying, okay, there's opposition, we need to go. They're going to stay there as long as they can, despite that opposition, and the Lord grants them signs and wonders again to confirm these are the bearers of my word. They bring the truth. Ignore these jealous Jews that are trying to close off people's minds and hearts to this message. Verse 4 of 14. But the people of the city were divided. That's what's naturally going to happen, right? Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, and they learned of it, they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So the picture that we're given here at Iconium is that it's not just the Jews who were against Paul and Barnabas. The Jews form an unlikely alliance as they are going to Gentiles and poisoning their minds against this message. And it's the Jews and the Gentiles who then go to the rulers of this area to try to get that authority to get Paul and Barnabas out of the region. They realize that Paul and Barnabas aren't leaving just because these Jews and Gentiles are being a thorn in their side. They're, you know, showing up to the synagogues and, you know, chasing them out or saying things against them. What not? That doesn't stop Paul and Barnabas. It's only when it seems like persecution is imminent here. Then, again, they're going to move on to Lystra and now to Derby. In the city of Lystra, we have a really strange encounter where immediately upon entering almost, it seems like there's this healing, which we've just talked about how God granted them signs and wonders. The healing is to confirm that message. We've had that before in, in Acts. But this time, the people see that somebody is healed and they connect the dots. This man is a man of God. We, we need to recognize that. Except in this city, doesn't appear that they're Jewish, they're Gentile, they're Greek, they're polytheistic, and they have a completely different worldview so that when they see this miracle happen from the hands of Paul, they interpret it in a very different way. And their conclusion is that the Greek gods have come to us. Zeus, or in the Roman world, Jupiter. Hermes, in the Greek world, Mercury, in the Roman world. The gods themselves are here among us, and they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas and offering sacrifices to them. It seems there's a language problem. So this is 
kind of depicted as a backwater area, and they're proclaiming in their own tongues, here's Zeus and Hermes, but Paul and Barnabas don't understand the dialect. They don't understand the language. They don't really understand what's happening. It's like, why did you go to this city in the first place, guys? Um, but things start to become clear when a priest of Zeus comes and starts offering them sacrifices. And somehow Paul is managing to put words together that they hopefully would understand except it becomes more complicated because those people who have been against them in Antioch and Iconium, they come on the scene too, and they talk to the crowds, and pretty soon in Lystra, it goes from the people worshiping Paul and Barnabas to they stone them, and Paul specifically, at least, it's talked about Paul being stoned, and leave him out of this outside of the city there to die. So these people go from one moment of worshiping and honoring Paul and Barnabas to the rabble-rousers come and they practically put him to death. Which a lot of people say, when have we heard this story before? Sounds a lot like Palm Sunday. The crowds greet and honor Jesus, but by the time the Pharisees get their hands in the crowd and get their people in charge... The, the crowds have kind of gone away, and instead we hear people jeering and mocking Jesus and leave him for dead outside the city. So again, Paul is given this privilege to participate in the sufferings of Christ. Um, it's unclear exactly what state Paul was in. It seems like they really did intend to leave him there to die, but uh, Barnabas and the other disciples who have been traveling with him, they they pick him up and he, he goes off to the next city. You know, I'm thinking somebody who's been stoned is probably not in very good shape. And Luke doesn't really give us all of the details of his medical condition. You know, how was he able to travel? The, you know, the pain and agony. But no, it's just sort of like things haven't really deterred him at all. He goes off to the city of Derby. But um That was Bob Balgaman. He lives in I, I got you on I got you on the recording now, Bob. Bill? Uh, Bob. Um so there you go. At Lystra the 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 violence that's basically been promised but didn't happen is finally followed through on. And again, you could kind of explain it as that it, everything changed so quickly. Paul and Barnabas seemed to be in a very foreign area. They didn't understand what was going on, and it just, it all happened too quickly. They did not really intend, I think, um, to suffer stoning. It wasn't, it wasn't their goal. Sometimes it just happened. They go to Derby and I don't really know what happened there. Um, Luke, Luke doesn't mention a lot other than they're doing the same thing. They go, they preach the gospel, and they, they make disciples there. But then it's time to go back. And so we're now in 1421. Uh, when they had preached the gospel to that city that has Derby, they made many disciples. They have success there. It seems the crowd of, um, 
people did not follow them to Derby, it starts to get, okay, it's not worth it to keep traveling and following this guy. They're, they're way off. Lystra and Derby seem to be very unimportant cities, unlike Antioch and Paphos. So it's like, all right, let them go to the Hicks. We don't care about those people. If they want to hear that message, whatever. But the Jews uh, who had bothered them, they don't care. On the way back now, Paul is going to go and, as was said, they're going to hit all of these cities again. You, you would think that he would stop doing that because we know exactly what awaits him in the city, that opposition. He's not going for the opposition, though. He's going to encourage and strengthen all of the churches. And here's what I mean by the fact that you have to recognize that what's happening in these cities, there was already set up Jewish synagogues. They have organization. They have leadership in those communities. They have uh, worship schedules and all of those things set in place. When Paul brought the message and there were conversions, these people were not starting from scratch organizationally either. So you would think sometimes, and it's unclear how long Paul was at all of these different places. Um, the, some of the best stuff I saw is that this trip as a whole took two years, but even that's kind of guessing. Luke doesn't give us the specific timing and dates of all of this stuff. But to go to all of these different cities and establish churches, when we start a new church in a place, a mission plant, the general assumption is that it's going to take a long time. And it might be very small, and it might need to be subsidized, and, you know, it'll take time. And here, it's like, this guy's a genius. He just leaves churches wherever he goes. Well, part of that is because the synagogues were already there. The organization was already there. The people were already there. He was just giving them that message. They did grow. They did add more than when they were just part of the synagogues because the gospel went out to Gentiles. So they were being churches that were added onto, and there would have been some work that would have been necessary, but don't think he just goes into someplace and magically a church appears. He's working with stuff that's already there. People, organization, the teachings, etc. He's giving them the fulfilling message of that. But on his way back, he also does make sure that there are elders. And again, we've encountered this, and that seems to be a word for the pastor, the a person who is going to be in charge. The apostles are leaving, the ones that kind of organize things, but somebody still needs to make sure things run smoothly, and the elders are the ones that they appoint to do that. So they'll still be there, even though Paul and Barnabas are going to be away. But above all, Paul and Barnabas are commending these congregations to the Lord. And when Paul and Barnabas are going to get back to Antioch, they're going to talk about not all that they did, but all that God did with them, that they were God's instruments. And so they're not really, we would think, they have all of this momentum going. Why would they leave? Why would they go back to Antioch? They should have stayed there. You know, Paul could have become the bishop of Galatia or whatever. He could have really made a change for all of those different people. But this particular work that God sent him to do, the Holy Spirit sent him to do, apparently Paul felt it had reached its conclusion. He was okay coming back to Antioch with Barnabas. And 
the Holy Spirit. God is in charge of them. Now, that's a pretty big step of faith, to, to know, to trust that this church doesn't depend on me, Paul, doesn't depend on Barnabas. It's not my church. It's the Lord's church. It wasn't Paul and Barnabas's idea maybe to go on this journey. The Holy Spirit, the Lord sent them out and the Lord blessed their journey, blessed the words that they spoke, that message. And now they can go back, not really worrying, okay, the church is going to die. It's going to fall apart. They're going to be praying for them. But even that is that act of faith, of commending them to the Lord. It's the Lord's church. He'll give growth. He'll, he'll bless it. He'll protect it. What makes it more amazing is they had no resources. Mm-hmm. They have the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, our inspiration and teachings come directly from the Word of God. They didn't even have that. All they had is what they heard from Paul. Unless yeah. Wrote, wrote it down word for word what he was saying. They just they didn't have any resources. Well, and but they, I mean, they they did have Old Testament scriptures, and Paul can teach through the Old the Testament. The Gentiles didn't. Oh, which reminds me. So that question was asked. We have to go to this quick. Um, at Lystra, they're there, and um, and they have this message, and this is the message to these people that don't have this Gentile background. And so Paul's message is in verse 15. Uh, 1415. So this is to a group of people that don't have the, you're waiting for the Messiah, Jesus is that Messiah, now repent and believe. Instead, these are just random people that seem to believe that Paul and Barnabas are gods. They're crazy. He says, men, why are you doing these things? We're men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things meaning they're basically idol worship, you know, worshiping statues that, that are the gods, instead to turn to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk their own way, walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So that's, that's his message to a Gentile audience. And we would say, where's the gospel in that? Where, where, where is Jesus? And I think the point is, if they have more time, they have more time to, to make those connections. Right now, what do you do when you have a group that doesn't share all of your beliefs and values, etc.? You have to meet them where they're at. And what do they know? They know worshiping these statues as gods. And he's going to say, there's a living God. Doesn't a living God sound a lot better than this thing? And this living God wants to be known. He sent messengers. Now they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods themselves. And they're saying, no, we're, we're, we're witnesses. We're messengers from this God of what he's going to do, what he has done, what he is doing. And so, yeah, it's a very different sermon. And yet that's how he has to approach them. Because if he goes there saying, uh, the Psalms say that his son, you know, what? Yeah, so nothing. I, just, I still don't understand how he's able to plant so many churches when he gets run out of town just about every time. Mm-hmm. Left, why are the people left that is the church now mm-hmm. not also run out of town? 
Yeah, some of the, I mean, some of the disciples are left behind in all the cities because we hear about him going back and there's a church there now where there wasn't before. Yeah, I mean, his power and authority, his, his power of speech, um, yeah, as long as it was somebody else, it wasn't them, maybe they were okay. Um, I had one last thought. What was it? Okay, here's the last thought. Most of what happens here is in this Roman province called Galatia. So this is the stuff to keep in mind when you read the epistle to the Galatians, right? Same people. And you hear in that letter about how much conflict there is among them, about how jealous people have come in and brought a message, a gospel, which is no gospel at all. And you can see it was there from the very beginning. Those those people who opposed Paul, they were there from day one. But now upon him departing, they're, they've, they've not given up. They've still ramped up that effort. So here, Paul isn't leaving them completely alone. He's sending these these epistles, these letters back to confirm them in what he has already taught them. Again, I feel a little bit bad that I didn't spend time on his message there in Antioch. But if you read that and you read it closely, you'd see that the themes in the book of Galatians, book of Galatians, what's, what's the general message there? Martin Luther liked it. Yeah, justification by faith through grace alone. And if you read through Paul's sermon at Antioch, he talks about that same thing. He says, by the law of Moses, none of us are justified, but through Jesus, believing in him, we have salvation. So that message that he refers to in the book of Galatians and says there isn't any other gospel, that is the message that he has been planting here in all of those places. And again, it tells us that Paul didn't have a lot of different versions of the gospel. There was only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus, that message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And even if at Lystra he didn't get all the way there, uh, it's it's sort of like us with our unbelieving friends and neighbors. You you find a place to connect. You know, everybody wants to be loved. How can how can that speak to Christ? How can that speak to the gospel? The love that we have, that unconditional love that fills us, that that helps us to love one another. A love that tells us that there is. Not just a, a love that says says yes to everything, but there is love and truth. That God speaks his truth. He condemns us because we are sinners, but he speaks love that we are saved because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Sylvia? One last question. Yep. When he speaks of, um, going back to 13. Which chapter? Uh, 13. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's when he sends out the 72, and if they don't receive you, then shake the dust off your, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, you, the message was here, the opportunity was here, and you rejected it. It's, it's a sign of judgment. 
No, it it not it it wouldn't be intended towards them, but like the rulers, the ones that were forcing them out. And this is on you. He's basically saying um, because we know that there were also believers there. It's not not condemning them just because they happen to be in the city too. Yeah, yeah. All right, so. It was fast. There's, there's stuff that I would normally like to talk about, but I just, I wanted to treat that as one whole thing. The first missionary journey. This will be one that, you know, you always remember because the second and third one will become a lot, a little bit more complicated, a little bit more detailed. They go to Cyprus. They go to this area of Asia Minor, which respectively, Paul and Barnabas go to areas that are somewhat familiar to them. And at first, things start out really great, and it seems like this is just going to be an awesome thing because of that uh, support that they have from the proconsul in Cyprus. But when they go to Antioch, yes, the message goes out, the church grows, but opposition grows severely. And Paul and Barnabas are going to kind of be on the run from city to city, avoiding persecution for the most part, except in Lystra, where they do receive that persecution. And so when Paul comes back, you can imagine him. What, did he have a broken arm? Did he have a black eye? Did he have bruises on his body? And he tells the people to encourage them, we have to suffer things like this for the kingdom of God. How's that for encouragement, right? They're like, I don't like that anymore. But that's the message that he bore. He bore it in his own body. It wasn't just words. Talk is cheap. It was there with him visibly. All right. Thank you very much. Next week, like I said, we'll do something different. In January, we'll come back and we have the council in Jerusalem. We thought we figured out this Gentile issue, but we're going to have to revisit it because after they come back from Antioch and everybody hears about how the Jews are divided, the Gentiles are receiving the gospel. They're like, wait a second, this this isn't how it's supposed to go. It's the Jews should be united and they go out to the Gentiles. What's, what's wrong here? Is something wrong? And we'll see that there's nothing wrong at all. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.